Good evening, everyone. Y'all can do better than that. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. See, Dr. Nelson already told me that half of you guys are family, so I expect for you to be a little rowdier. Uh, don't be, no, no. Especially if y'all live in Baltimore, I already know. So, bring it, bring it. <laughs> um, my name is April Yvonne Garrett, and I am a native of Baltimore City. I'm the founder and president of Civic Frame a Baltimore-based national nonprofit organization that uses documentary film and intellectual work to encourage dialogue about social issues. I also host a show on the mayor station, Channel 25, called Amplify Baltimore, that highlights some of the issues we face as a city, and it amplifies the wonderful people, organizations, and businesses who are making Baltimore better. I say all of that to say that the reason why I'm here is because my organization started at the Pratt Library. We did our first programs here, in the Wheeler Auditorium downstairs, and we've done it upstairs. I keep forgetting that. <laughs> and um, a couple of programs here. So I consider this kind of my home in Baltimore, and I'm really happy to be here. So the, the wonders of Facebook brought this moment together. Um, Judy Cooper, who is the incredible director of programs, uh, if you guys are familiar with the library, you already know the library hosts hundreds of programs every year. Um, bringing a diverse array of people together to talk about issues that are incredible, fun, intellectually stimulating, um, and often challenging. And Judy Cooper and I are friends on Facebook, and she's always seeing my brilliant friends do stuff. And so when I post things on Facebook about my friends, she's always like, can we get them to come to Baltimore? And she starts making connections. So one of the connections that we made was getting Dr. Nelson here today. So I'm excited about that, and we're going to give props to the wonderful utility of Facebook when it's used in its best form. I want you all to know also that this is being pod, it's being podcasted this evening, right? So when we get to question and answer, I'm going to handle that, and I'm going to hand you a microphone. So I want you to be able to feel comfortable in saying whatever you say, but know that it will be in the annals of this library forever. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. So as I stated, Dr. Alondra Nelson is here today because we're friends. And I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Nelson, what's that, 2006? Ago, yeah. 2006, 2007. And we were at a conference at Yale University, the Middle Passage Conference. And it was one of the best conferences I had ever attended, um, talking about the Middle Passage. They were conversations. So it wasn't a bunch of scholars just kind of reading dry work from papers. Um, they were talking about the lived experience of how in, in this generation, through religion, through art, through music, I mean, there were some incredible panels, um, how we kind of lived through the experience of the Middle Passage. It was really something extraordinary. And then we partied. Did we party? We did. So there's this iconic picture. If any of you ever decide to friend me on Facebook, there is this picture that I did not know was being taken, nor did Dr. Nelson. And I gave some students from Yale Divinity School my camera. I said, you guys just take pictures, and I don't care what they look like. Just take pictures. We're having fun. So I get back for Sunday dinner with my parents, and they were like, April, how was the conference? I'm like, I don't know. Let's look at the pictures and find out. <laughs> so there's this incredible picture of me dancing with Dr. West, uh, Dr. Cornell West, too. I think outstanding by, um, what is it, the Gap Man? And it is a really funny picture. And Dr. Nelson is in it, too. She's, like, jamming. So we're both a part of history with this picture that is currently in his office, by the way. <laughs> no, it's, it's a really attractive picture. But I say all of that to say that 
the best thing that a scholar can do besides putting their energy and effort and, and time and skill into unearthing really interesting things about the way we live and the way we connect is to share that with the public in a unique way. And I always say to my friends who decided to get their PhDs because I decided not to, that you're really smart if you can take that work and take that passion and make that work apply to average everyday people so that they can get it, right? So that they can apply it in some way in their average everyday lives. So when I started to do my work, I was like, okay, my mom is in ninth grade education and a GED. If she can get what I'm doing, I'm spot on, right? Because this is not just about the people that I went to school with and the folks who can really, really get it. This is about everybody else getting it. So some of you guys are family members. I want to see the family members raise their hands. Everybody give it up for the family members. Now, most of you are here because you already know the bio of Dr. Nelson. Yes, she's a professor of sociology at Columbia University. Yes, she is a scholar with regard to race and medicine and all of these great things. But I wanted the family members to help me a little bit with her introduction. If one or two of you could tell me why she, as a family member, as a scholar, as somebody who's here today to present this incredible work about the med medical programs offered by the Black Panther Party. Tell me a little bit why you think Dr. Nelson's work is important and, and what you think the audience might get out of her talk today. I'm going to give you the mic. Hold on. A mic. <laughs> okay. All right, don't be shy. Because we're in Baltimore. I know we ain't shy. Okay, shy. who's going to start? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go, Ma. Uh oh, Mom, am I putting you in the spot? No. Oh, ah! Oh, you did. She shouted. I was running from the parking lot. I got to get to my girl. All right, Mom, you have to tell us. Okay. Well. I think that uh, it's important. First of all, I think that she probably wrote about this because she's always been extremely social-minded. Even as little children, I can remember one of the priests saying to me, boy, your children are so social-minded. But it's important, and I hope that we've instilled that into all of them. But I think she particularly picked this issue, and even as I talk to my friends today, you say Black Panther, uh -huh. and the first thing you think is radical group. And when I read her book, because I've read it before it got published, uh, that's right, um, I, was, I was blown away. I mean, I was like, you know, a kid of the 50s and 60s, and it was like, we, we, we didn't hear this when they were coming through there. It was all negative, and I had no idea that they were the initiatives for medicine for the African Americans, especially in New York and California. And then as I remember as a child, we didn't have medical care. You know, we used to laugh. If mama couldn't do it, grandma could. And if grandma couldn't do it, what was it? You were dead. So I was just blown away to know. So I'm very pleased that she did this. And I'm really educating not only myself, but a lot of my contemporaries who feel who really thought the same thing. So thank you so much. For Can we get them up for mama? Because, you know, <laughs> you must be very proud. OK, we got to get into the next year. I'm going to go to the person who called me out for running. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I know you got a mouth though here. Just a little bit. Good evening. I'm Tanya Lonnie's cousin. Tanya Lonnie's cousin, okay. And 
and uh, we're first cousins. Her mother is my mother's sister. And I believe Lonnie did this um, pretty much because of her background, her foundation. Our family is a very strong family. We try to st stay well educated, keep our kids educated, and ourselves educated. And again, like her mother said, we did, just didn't know this much about the Black Panthers. Um, so it's an enlightening situation for our race, for we the people, and for everyone out here, not just um, African Americans, but for everyone. Um, and I personally just want to say on that note, I'm proud of her. I'm glad she's doing it. I've been bragging about you at work. Girl told me to bring her some books from, from, from um, told me to bring a book for her and all that, but I don't want to do that right now because we don't have that many books out there. The family took over. But I've been bragging about my family, about my cousin, about our heritage, and about the knowledge and smartness of the women in our family because we come from a strong history of African-American women. I can see that. Yes. All right. <laughs> Thank you. And what's your name? April. April. And that's running April. All right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. But I figured as much. You know, Baltimore folk, y'all are just special. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, we didn't clap. Chandra, Chandra. I know that's right. <laughs> so you can tell that Dr. Nelson comes from an extraordinary background. Um, that she understands her craft is something that is intellectual, but also is something that has a social justice imperative attached to it. Um, I think all of you are here because you read her bio. I just want you to experience her as a person. So I'm going to stop talking so you can experience her now. Dr. Alondra Nelson, welcome back to Baltimore. Thank you, April. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, I, you probably gathered April is quite the phenom. I mean, she has single-handedly over the last several years uh, done really important transformative work in Baltimore and her, her beloved Charm City, um, and it's been inspiring to watch her work from afar. Uh, so congratulations on all that you've accomplished um, in the last few years. And thanks also to Therese Edmond, who's here in the back, and Judy Cooper, who, um, when I got in touch with Judy vis-a-vis uh, uh, April said immediately, oh yes, you must come and talk about the work and we can't wait to help you and was just fantastic and supportive. Um, and it's great to be here. And thanks, of course, to all of you for coming on a Tuesday evening and to my family from near and far for coming this tonight and for supporting me op over so many years. Grab some water. So we talked about this a little bit. Um, April talked about it a bit in her introduction, but what typically comes to mind when you think about the Black Panther Party? Images? events, moments. We got a, there's somebody raised a black power fist in the back. We have two fists up in the back. There's four fists up in the back. Lots of <laughs> Angela Davis. To be honest, when I initially thought the Black Panther was, was whenever trouble was on the uh, city streets of Los Angeles, New York, big cities, that they would always intervene so that the, um, the, 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 the fighting and the, and the negativity wouldn't go on. Right. I thought they were a, a, blo I thought they were a blockage for the fighting on the streets, trying to keep it peaceful. Okay, so that's community that's protection. That's what I they were. Mm -hmm. And also, but, but you were also signaling their, um, the fact that they have interactions, we might call them with police as part of their the legacy. Interactions, charged interactions. Like we call now um, neighborhood watch. Sure, yeah. they were kind of like um, uh, strong black powered men and women mm -hmm. who were more like neighborhood watch for the major cities. And that's, that's what I initially thought it was yes. when I thought of Black Panthers. Right. Yeah. Anybody else? What else? 
Yes, sir. Um, I think about one of the um, quotes I heard um, that um, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI said that the Black Panthers were the big, biggest threat to national security. Right. But then I found out why they said that. It had nothing to do with the guns, had nothing to do with the oil. They said they were the biggest threat because they fed their own people. So once I heard that, I was like, oh, a, a lot of history makes sense. That whole idea that they say they want us to be independent and self-reliant, but every time we are and we try to, they do something to suppress it. Yes. So to me, that was a profound um, Thank quote. you for that. Nicely said. Thank you. Anybody else? Good. So other, you know, other things that might come to mind along with the, the raised black fist, we had four or five fists in the audience, might be afros and leather jackets, right? Um, and uh, Tanya's comment a little bit, as I suggested, talked about their, their sort of charge relationship with the police. Um, they had often shootouts with police. There were fatalities um, as a result of their interactions with police. Sometimes they were initiated by the Black Panthers. They weren't angels, you know, they didn't have halos under those black berets. Um, but sometimes they were, were initiated by the police and there was a, a, a obviously a campaign of repression against the police from the very top of the federal government, J. Edgar Hoover, to federal police to local police agencies. So this is what I thought too about the Black Panther Party for the most part when I embarked on this research about a decade ago, um, which started uh, as when I was a graduate student. And um, because I'm interested, as April said, in thinking about African American history and culture with regards to health and medicine in particular, I knew a little bit about the fact that the Black Panther Party had done some work around sickle cell anemia. There were a few mentions here in there in books, but I didn't know much about it. And it left me with more questions than filling in more details. So it left, left me with questions about, uh, you know, how did they get the tests? Who did the tests? You know, why would they do the tests? Were nobody else, was, was no one else doing the tests? These sorts of questions. Um, were there other health programs or was this just a sort of one-off thing that the party did along with breakfast programs and um, this sort of neighborhood block uh, work that you were talking about? So for about the last 10 years, I did all sorts of research to try to patch this story together. Um, Body and Soul, my book, is the first book-length study of the Black Panther Party's health programs. Nobody had written it before, about this before, and I had to cobble together a lots of different types of sources. So I did fairly traditional archival research in libraries all over the country, Seattle, New York City, um, a little bit um, in uh, Oakland, um, Los Angeles. Um, as well, I did lots of interviews with former members of the party as well as their collaborators. So um, unlike other forms of, of activism, health activism requires that people have collaborators who are medical experts, professionals. So you can't just, unlike the breakfast program, you can probably teach most people to scramble an egg, right? Um, but it's not necessarily the case that you can teach somebody to do stitches or, or these sorts of things that happen in clinics. And so the Black Panthers worked with an interracial coalition of doctors and nurses and medical students. They often had people working with them who had come back from the Vietnam War disillusioned and who had been trained as medics in the Vietnam War and also worked in the clinics. Um, and so I interviewed those types of folks. I actually went to the sites of former um, chapters. So in Seattle, I traveled to the neighborhood where um, there is uh, where the Black Panther Party's headquarters and also their former clinic is located. And, and today in that same neighborhood is a clinic that is named for a former member of the Black Panther Party that sort of carries on the legacy of the Panthers work, although it's not a Panther-run clinic. It's called the Carolyn Downs Medical Center. 
And I also went to the 40th anniversary celebration of the Black Panther Party in Oakland five years ago, um, where I uh, sort of interviewed people and documented that they did these chapter histories. So each chapter of the party stood up and talked about the programs that each of their chapters were doing and how they succeeded. And they just gave these wonderful oral, oral histories. Some chapters had two or three remaining people in the chapters. Other chapters, like in New York, had you know 15 or 20 people on the stage telling their stories. So you know bits and pieces of things here and there, and I also in the archives found wonderful things like flyers for the openings of, um, uh, of various clinics and flyers advertising their free sickle cell anemia testing and these sorts of things. And so what I would find is that the Black Panther Party was far more complicated and far more interesting and imp important than we give it credit for being. And you know, I don't sort of stand here, and I didn't write this book necessarily as, you know, as an apologist for the Black Panther Party, because there are things that we can be critical of. But I think that, and I, I believe, um, sincerely and vehemently that we need to have, they're, they're important historical figures and we need to have a full historical counting of the work that they did. It matters for the history records, it matters for our society, and I think ultimately it matters for the, the health of black people, actually, to know that there have been moments of empowerment um, and moments of agency and self-determination with regards to healthcare and the black community. So tonight, um, I'm going to do something kind of fun. I'm going to read two passages from the book along the way, but with the help of my niece, Maya Nelson, uh, who's here. Where's Maya? Thank you. And with a debt to the David Letterman Show's top 10 list. Come up here, Maya. And also because the Black Panther Party also had what we might think of as a top 10 list, right? They had their famous 10-point platform. Um, I'm going to... Um, talk to you tonight about the top 10 things we don't know but should know about the Black Panther Party. Okay. Maya? 10. <laughs> Number 10. <laughs> Number 10. <laughs> I have other nieces and nephews here. We, you, you can be replaced. <laughs> you can use this mic. Number, number nine. Number ten. Number oh, ten. I'm not sure. I'm just at ten. Oh, number ten. Number ten. Okay. Number ten. The Black Party Panther Party was originally called the Black Panther Party for self-defense. In Body and Soul, I write about the Black Panther Party also as a party for medical self-defense. I explain how their work was about protection for black and poor communities from medical experimentation, about resisting inadequate treatment and disrespectful treatment, about having universal access to healthcare, and about offering and imagining alternatives for healthcare when there was none available for poor communities. Maya? Number nine. The Black Panther Party wrote two 10-point platforms. Did anybody, who knew that? Did you know that there were two? Probably people know of the original one. So there was two. There was one in 1966, in October 1966, when the party was first organized. And there was a second one in uh, March of 1972. And what's interesting, and uh, and that I, what's interesting uh, with regard to the health activism of the Black Panther Party is that the the revision of the the ten point platform from 1966 to 1972 is also an amplification of its health politics. So the 1966 ten point platform was already interested in community welfare issues, right? So it says that people need housing and they need justice and they need peace and they need land. Um, but by the time you get to 1972, they revise the point six of the ten point platform, and it and and in this revised point six demands health care for all Black and oppressed people. 
and it's 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 um, explicitly uh, a demand for healthcare as a universal human right. Maya? Number eight. Number eight. I bet you didn't know that by 1970, all Black Panther chapters had to have a clinic to be considered an official chapter. So the party starts in 1966 um, when the party first gets started. Soon after the party begins, one of the co-founders, Huey Newton, is incarcerated soon after. Um, uh, he's, it's alleged that he has um, committed a, a murder of a police officer and he is acquitted um, ultimately for this crime, but he's kept behind bars for many, many months. Um, because of the Free Huey campaign, which many of you probably know about, because of all of the press that the Black Panther Party was getting at this time um, re regarding their various campaigns, their neighborhood block campaigns, we might call them, um, but sometimes that resulted in fatalities. Um, people all over the country were saying, we want to have a Black Panther Party. We're Black Panthers too. How can we be involved in the organization. And initially, the party would let people who contacted them sort of just establish chapters, but the things things got too unwieldy. Chapters were springing up, they were getting big, the central committee didn't really have a lot of control over what was happening in the chapters. So by 1970, the headquarters, the Panther headquarters, sends down a mandate that all Black Panther chapters have to have a, a free breakfast program and they also have to have a health clinic. So by 1970, health activism was part of the, the sort of core of the Black Panther Party's activities. The headquarters were in Oakland. The, the party was started in Oakland. So the clinics were important because they were in 13 cities. So by the time you get to sort of 1971, there's a national network, right, of health clinics. Um, they basically served as the infrastructure um, for uh, all of the rest of the health work that the Black Panther Party would do, the sort of home base for these, the health work. And they were interesting because they were put together with local resources and based on local needs. So um, the headquarter, the campaign, uh, the party um, leadership mandated that all chapters had to have clinics, but they didn't give any of the clinics or the chapters resources to operate. And so people just had to make these truly grassroots efforts. So people took donations. Um, they uh, got. They were ran with volunteer labor. Um, uh, people took uh, one person I interviewed in Los Angeles was a medical student and he got donations from his teachers at UCLA Medical Center. Um, uh, Tolbert Small, who was one of the medical directors for uh, the Black Panther Party's clinic in Berkeley, would go to uh, medical supply offices and seek donations. So he would take meetings with medical supply companies um, in the Bay Area. And they also had collaborations with other kinds of other uh, health clinics, like the Haight-Ashbury sort of free clinics, the hippie clinics, um, the, the New Left SDS clinics, as well as the women's health clinics. And they all collaborated together, exchanged resources. The Berkeley free clinic would help the pa Black Panther Party to staff their pharmacy um, in Berkeley. Um, so I wanted to read a little bit for you. Do you want to? Do you want to take a break, Maya, or do you want to? Uh, are you good? She's working. I know. So I'm just going to read to you a little bit about a, a part of the book that's about the formation of the clinics and why the party thought that they were necessary. This is from the beginning of chapter three, which is called the People's Free Medical Clinics, and it begins with an epigram uh, from an article in a medical, in American Medical News, about the free clinic phenomenon in Black communities. And this is a quote: "At the clinic, patients don't get a political rap before they see a physician, but the very existence of the clinic is political." A February 1970 issue of the Black Panther, which was the organization's newspaper, featured two articles that dramatized how mainstream medicine could fail poor communities. One account told of the untimely death of James Anthony Nero, an African-American infant in Brooklyn, New York. 
Suffering from fever and chest congestion, James was taken to the emergency room of a local hospital. Doctors hurriedly examined the baby and allegedly sent him home with medication, but without a proper diagnosis. Several days later, James was discovered unconscious by his mother, Hattie. Taken again to the emergency room, the infant was pronounced dead on arrival. He was four months old. A photograph of baby James in his tiny casket, which harked back to the images of Emmett Till, accompanied the story. The Black Panther piece conjectured that, and getting to, quote, the essence of baby James's tragic death, necessitated a consideration of the broader circumstances surrounding it. The activists criticized especially the failed social service system. The Black Panther's account of this incident underscored the fact that the Nero family lived in Brownsville, a Brooklyn neighborhood so neglected by municipal services that, quote, garbage piled up, attracting rats, mice, and roaches. The diagnosis that had allegedly eluded James's doctors was then ventured by the party. The newspaper declared that, quote, pneumonia and flu viruses run rampant in impoverished settings such as this. A second article in the same issue of the Black Panther newspaper used anecdotal vignettes to, to, to depict the dismal state of healthcare services for the underprivileged in the Bay Area, shining a light on the disrespectful, unprofessional, and even author authoritarian encounters between physicians and their patients at San Francisco General, a public teaching hospital affiliated with the University of California. This article's unnamed author declared that this public facility should not be regarded as a, quote, charity hospital because there is no charity practice there. Represented as a typical hospital where patient-doctor interactions um, such as this one described, it was represented as a typical hospital in which patient-doctor interactions such as the one described here regularly took place. And this is a quote. The intern who examines you at least says hello, but the resident who comes to check up on you hurts you and ignores you. He talks to you as if you weren't there, close quote. Affronts to women seeking reproductive health care at San Francisco General received extended consideration in the same article um, in its portrayal of the many hurdles and indignities faced by hypothetical, impoverished, pregnant every women of color who, by getting, uh, who were getting by with Medicaid assistance. Shuttled between purient um, social service workers and public health nurses, poorly managed municipal health facilities, and callous physicians um, depicted as lobbying expected mothers to choose abortions over childbirth. Poor women's pursuit of maternal care was presented as a frustrating, coercive, and demeaning affair. The article spins out from these vignettes to a broader critique of what the activists called the medical industrial complex, and this is a quote. The drug companies, the doctors, the insurance companies, and the equipment suppliers take in huge profits from private hospitals because they don't have to deal with poor people in the city. The Department of Public Health is in collusion with the Chamber of Commerce and with the health industry because it maintains an undersupplied, drastically understaffed, over-policed, over-social-worked institution, San Francisco General Hospital, which has no respect whatsoever for the privacy and dignity of people who have no choice but to use it." Close quote. So this account and the newspaper closes with a rallying cry for support of the party's own health care facilities. And so this was the, the sort of conundrum that the Black Panthers as activists thought that they, they and their communities were faced with. These were the kind of scenarios they were responding to in establishing their own health clinics. So one, these, this second article wraps up with the following quote. Our people are dying of medical miscare. 
We must make work, make, we, we must all work to make the people's free health clinics a reality. My, I almost fell asleep there, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Number, oh. number seven? Number seven. Okay, so as I mentioned, the clinics were um, run with local resources and based on local needs. And one example of this, just briefly, is the, the Winston-Salem um, chapter of the Black Panther Party in, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which had an ambulance service. So um, this was something that this community in particular needed, right? Um, they needed it because uh, the, the ambulance service that, was exist that existed in the city was um, one that was uh, a fee for service. So you couldn't just, if you were sick or someone had had a heart attack, you couldn't just order an ambulance service because it was the right thing to do to have someone um, get quickly to a hospital who's had a had heart attack. And moreover, the dispatcher was sort of, um, they were the dispatchers for the ambulances were accused of being racially discriminatory in the way that they dispatched ambulances. So you would call a dispatcher and you would say, you know, my, I think my father's had a stroke, can you send an ambulance? And they would try to um, assess where, in which neighborhood you lived and whether or not you could afford to pay and then decide whether or not they wanted to send an ambulance to that community um, to, to take that person to the hospital. So in response to this, the Winston-Salem chapter, with the help of, and again, you know, I go into some of this in the book, the Panthers had really interesting and unexpected alliances. So in this case, they would ally with the Episcopal Church of, of North Carolina, who helped them to get money for their ambulance service um, and helped them to get insurance for their ambulance service. And many of the members of the party would go and get EMT training, so they had the, the official sort of credential that they needed to run the ambulance service as well. Six. Thank you, Maya. <laughs> She's doing great. So, and it, is this? I bet this is this is the first time you've been in front of a microphone in front of fifty people, right? Yeah. I think you're doing fantastic. This is great. Number six, in addition to doing health care for local communities, the Black Panther Party helped to ensure health care for themselves. Um, they often lived communally in the Bay Area, for example. They had several houses that they owned or rented and lived together in. Um, and so uh, part of the work that they did was sort of seeing to the health care of, of the children in the community who were ill. And um, Tolbert Small, the doctor who I mentioned in the beginning, would often do house calls to treat the children for colds and pneumonia and these sorts of things. One of the more interesting and poignant stories that came up in my interviews was an interview with a woman named Norma Armour, who was uh, worked in the Black Panther clinics both in Los Angeles and San Francisco and today in Los Angeles is effectively a health activist. She works at the King Drew Hospital uh, doing health outreach work there. So Norma um, was involved, there was a sort of women's group of, in the Black Panther Party Clinic in Berkeley and Norma was involved in this. And as some of you might recall, during this moment where the Black Panther Party were doing their health work, it was also the sort of, it was also a sort of high watermark for women's health activism, for feminist health activism. Um, and part of this was women doing sort of self-help care for themselves. And it also included sometimes women doing self-care gynecology, right? And this was part of the activism of this moment. And Norma, um, is, is, is practicing this sort of self-help gynecology, would have, would find, um, doing a self-examination of her cervix, that she had, um, and she would have an irregular um, examination. She found irregularities in her examination. And she would go and see a doctor, and she'd find that she had cervical cancer. 
And um, she caught it early enough, but it was because of this sort of practice of health self-determination that she was able to get herself diagnosed. And, and you know, she's this was um, 40 years ago. So Norma is among us today in part because of this own, the work that she was doing. And Norma also told me, I guess, to, to add to this that one of the things that was difficult, my mother said at the beginning, um, that people didn't go to the doctor, people of, of her generation didn't necessarily go to the doctor um, in the ways that we do now if we're fortunate enough to have health insurance. But one of the things that Norma said to me, who's a little bit younger than my mother's generation and grew up in Los Angeles, which is not, um, you know, a city that's known for being as, you know, we don't think of it as being as racially discriminatory as some place like a small town in Mississippi. But she said even being in South Central in the 1960s, there were places you did not go. So part of the reason she wouldn't go to the USC Medical Center was because it was quite far. And quite frankly, there was no one telling them that, you know, black people couldn't get on the bus or that she couldn't go to the other side of town. But black people in South Central did not go on the other side of Western Avenue she said to me. Um, and so we have to also think, when we think about access to health care, we have to think about these sorts of psychic boundaries, right? I mean, there were no Jim Crow signs, but it was very clear to her that the USC Medical Center across town was not a friendly place. It was not a local place. It was not a familiar place. It was not a place where she felt she could get her best health care. So that's giving you all context for what the party members were um, involved in. Maya? Number four, one, four, right? Oh, number five? Number five. Well, some of you know from what I started out saying that um, the Black Panther Party provided genetic testing, genetic screening for sickle cell anemia, which is a, um, a genetic disease that predominantly affects communities of African descent. They did testing in parks and clinics. I start the book in, uh, in the first chapter of the book describing this, what they, called as, what they called the Black Community Survival Conference. They'd have several of these in the early 1970s. And I described the one in March of 1972 in which they tested several thousand people for sickle cell anemia. And there's photographs in the book of, of them doing the testing. One of the things they highlighted uh, with their research was, uh, with, their, with their sickle cell anemia campaign, was what we now call health disparities, one of the things we call health disparities, and these were funding disparities. So they were avid readers of the Journal of the American Medical Association and other kinds of medical journals, the people in the, in the organization who were involved in the health activism. And they would do a reading of a Journal of the American Medical Association article from 1970 that showed that there were extreme funding disparities with regard to how the NIH were funding genetic diseases, were supporting, were giving research money for genetic diseases. So in 1970, um, the NIH had um, allocated about $100,000 for research to eradicate sickle cell anemia disease, but there were other genetic diseases that were similar, similar types of diseases, sort of dominant recessive heterozygous genetic diseases um, that were prevalent in other communities, right, such as Tay-Sachs, which was receiving at the same time millions and millions of dollars with regards to research funding. And so the Black Panthers highlighted this racial disparity um, in healthcare funding. And um, as one measure of success of the work that they did to raise awareness around sickle cell anemia, I just want to note for you that by 1972, the conservative anti-Black Panther Nixon administration would pass the Sickle Cell Anemia Care Act in which he allocated $1.2 million for the research and treatment of sickle cell anemia. So there was you know, a multiple fold increase in just two years time and part of that is owing to the work that the Black Panther Party and other black activists and organizations did to raise awareness around the disease. Number four. Number four. 
Along the same line, one of the interesting ways that the Black Panther Party raised awareness, and there's a, a really, there's a couple of photographs in the book that you might want to take a peek at, um, raise awareness about sickle cell anemia was a, a, an appearance on the Mike Douglas show. So how many of you are old enough to remember, remember the Mike Douglas show? So one of the things that's so striking about about how little we know about the Black Panthers' health activism is that they were on the Mike Douglas show as guests talking in technical detail about black power, about sickle cell anemia, and about the, the Black Panthers' other initiatives during the week that Yoko Ono and John Lennon served as guest hosts. So those of you who are old enough to remember a time when we had three channels, when this was a nationally broadcast show, right? Millions of people would have seen this show and would have seen the Black Panthers talking about it, right? And that really goes to the kind of cultural amnesia that we have around the Black Panther Party, right? Lots of people saw this, but we don't think of them as having done this work. And it's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating presentation. Bobby Seale comes on and talks about the community service programs more generally. A woman named Marsha Mills, an African-American woman who was a member of the Black Panther Party in the Bay Area, and at the time the student body president of Mills College, talks about the community survival conference that's coming up the next weekend, and a Black Panther Party collaborator named Donald Williams, an African-American medical student at Stanford University, goes into fine detail about the genetics of sickle cell anemia, what the disease is, how it's transmitted, and what the current treatments were as of 1972 when this was taking place. It's not, it's not, okay, well. <laughs> There's like the copyright issue. I've been thinking about how to get it on YouTube. I should try. I've been I've been working. I have a clip, but I'm I'm a little gun shy. <laughs> Let's say about about putting. I don't want to be sued by Rhino Records or NBC or whoever uh, um, owns it. But we'll see. But I can send you the link for sure if we can't put it up. Number three. Number three. So. One of the interesting things that we learned by looking about the Black Panther Party that we didn't know before, particularly by looking at the health activism, is that we learned that what we think is the hard division between the civil rights movement and the black power movement is actually not so hard. So early on in the book, in chapter one, I, I used this um, a quote from an interview I did with Elaine Brown, who was a, a chairwoman of the party for a time in the 73, 74. And she says, we actually didn't talk about the civil rights movement and the black movement. We just called everything the movement. We didn't necessarily agree with everything that Martin Luther King said, but we were, he was in the movement, we were in the movement. For us, it was all the same. And I think what the Black Panther Party's healthcare shows us, their healthcare activism shows us, is that these lines were blurred and that the, cat the, the differences which sometimes come with a lot of moral weight, like the civil rights movement was good and the black power activists were horrible and bad, doesn't really hold water when you think about the healthcare activism. So a couple of examples. One is that um, members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent or Organizing Committee or Coordinating Committee, who we sort of hold up as the sort of you know um, as being um, exemplars of the good, right? Quote unquote, civil rights movement would become members of the Black Panther Party, right? So this would be people like Kathleen Cleaver. This would be people like H. Rap Brown. This would be people like um, Stokely Carmichael, who was later Kwame Torre. Um, as a matter of fact, and during the 1964 Freedom Summer campaign um, that was organized by CORE and COFO and other organizations to bring civil rights activists from the North to, um, to help with the, 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 with the civil rights activism in the South, um, they sent down a cadre of people who were their health corps. They sent down medical students, um, doctors, nurses who were committed to the cause of civil rights. And when the Black Panther Party would in the early 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, begin to start their health care many of the people who had worked on the Freedom Summer campaign and the health and this, these health volunteers actually helped to establish the Black Panther clinics, right? So this is a direct link between the civil rights work of Freedom Summer 
and a Black Panther clinic in Los Angeles, for example, in which a gentleman, a doctor named Terry Coopers, who worked on Freedom Summer, would also help to the Panthers to start their, their campaign there. Similarly, this line is blurred if we think about the tactics that the Black Panther Party used. So they didn't only use guns and Im intimidation and, um, you know, uh, hard stares, right? Um, I write about a, a case in which, the, in chapter, uh, I think it's chapter five of the book, in which the Black Panther Party were part of this successful campaign to stop funding to a research center at UCLA called the Center for the Study and Reduction of Violence that was using Biomod biomedical um, theories about violence that were focused, focused, focused on uh, mostly black and Latino men and boys and that was theorizing, you know, a few years after the Watts Rebellion that the reason that there was violence in American society is that black and Latino boys and men were biologically patholo pathologically violent, right? And so the Black Panther Party, from their reading of Fanon, the Black Panther Party, because many of them had been incarcerated and knew how people in institutionalized settings were subject to these kinds of readings of their behavior, um, were resistant to uh, the formation of the center. And they would work with an attorney um, who's now a lobbyist in Sacramento. And they would, uh, their attorney on their behalf, and they worked with a coalition with the NAACP, who we would imagine from historical narratives were their mortal enemies or would never have anything in common, right, with them. And they basically um, testified before uh, the California state legislature as citizens, right? So on, on, sometimes the Black Panther Party were sort of working outside of the system. This is the Black Panther Party saying, we're citizens, these are our tax dollars, and you can't use our tax dollars to fund a research center that says that our sons and, you know, our, our husbands and sons are prone to violence because there's something biologically wrong with them. And they would be successful in this venture, and the center would never come to fruition. As we know, you know, through the course of history, research like this continued and continues now, and it's still quite Questionable. But this is the Black Panther Party using a legal tactic, a lobbying tactic, um, and not just, uh, you know, militarist or militant um, gun activism. Number two. Okay, say that again because I lost my marking on my page. <laughs> Wait, hang on one second. Grandma. <laughs> okay, here we go. Number two. Number two. <laughs> so one of the things I want people to take away from the book is that uh, is that the Panthers were involved with in sort of empowering black communities around their health care issues. And so this is what the subtitle refers to with the fight against medical discrimination. There's my goddaughter. <laughs> and yeah, she's my happens to be my niece as well. Okay, so I'm gonna read a little bit here, Maya, and then we can come back for the big final one. Okay. So, questionable scientific practices conducted with vulnerable communities have recently come to light in, the, in contemporary news in the U.S. Um, that make, the, uh, make health politics and the fight against medical discrimination all the more acute. In 2001, the historian Susan Reverby uncovered the deliberate infection of Guatemalan men and women with syphilis and other venereal diseases in the late 1940s by a U.S. researcher who was also involved with a notorious study of the disease in Tuskegee, Alabama. Same doctor. That began in the 1930s. As with the Tuskegee study, this Latin American syphilis experiment was undergirded by racial assumptions that, it, um, that, the frequency, uh, that held that the frequency of, of venereal disease among minority populations was, had something to do with their supposed moral inferiority and also biological peculiarity. 
In a somewhat similar vein, the journalist Rebecca Sklut has recently and vividly depicted how a Johns Hopkins researcher here in Baltimore surreptitiously uh, appropriated the fatally prolific cervical cells of Henrietta Lacks, a black working class woman who died of cancer in 1951. In the second half of the 20th century, Henrietta's thriving cells became vital to modern science, even as the Lacks family was devastated over the same decades by the many consequences of her loss. Reverby's and Sklut's revelations um, compound an already bleak record of vexed, uneven encounters between agents and racialized subjects of biomedicine that the science writer Harriet Washington has characterized as medical apartheid. On top of the long history of dubious research with black subjects delineated by Washington in her book, racial, racially discriminatory practices in medicine have included Jim Crow healthcare facilities, a formerly segregated medical profession, stubborn health disparities evidenced by many indices, and un the unequal treatment of blacks under medical treatment protocols for such conditions as cancer and heart disease. So this cascade of medical discrimination has had far-reaching implications. Racial health disparities in the United States, for example, have been shown to persist partly because Af of African-American communities past and continued distrust of the medical system. Owing to this distrust developed over generations in response to abuse, neglect, and racialization, some blacks are reticent about or even resistant to seeking necessary health care or participating in research studies. By way of a corrective to this shared apprehension that is quite li literally sickening in result, Harriet Washington in her book Medical Apartheid has bravely proposed that shining a light on, on, this, on the fact of medical apartheid may ha have the effect of a kind of social catharsis. That this may, by, by just shining the light on these 300 years of medical apartheid, might help us to remove barriers between black Americans and what she calls the bounty of the American healthcare system. So, but I want to suggest that at a time um, when the subjection of marginalized communities to biomedical authority is attracting renewed attention through the Scoop book and the Reverby research, um, the, that the recuperation of moments during which members of black communities endeavor to shift the balance of power in medicine um, might be equally important, right? So what I do in Body and Soul uses the case study of the Black Panther Party to illustrate one moment in which African Americans confronted medical discrimination in the healthcare system. They didn't allow their cells to be taken. They didn't just sit down and allow them to, themselves to be subjected by medical discrimination. Um, they didn't always succeed, but they always fought back. And so doing, uh, these communities did not assert a blanket rejection of medicine. Rather, they laid claim to a critical conception of healthfulness, a right to health equality, and, free and a freedom from medical discrimination. Number one. No, no, we don't have, we, we don't have the house bands not here tonight. Number one, and the number one thing we don't know about the Black Panther Party is the number one thing is that the legacy of the Black Panther Party's health activism continues today. So I mentioned to you the Seattle Clinic, the Carolyn Downs Medical Clinic that is in a location close by to where the Seattle Health Clinic was and is named for Carolyn Downs, a former member of the party who in 1968 started the Seattle Clinic. But also more poignantly, I want to remind you of 2005 and the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, the Panther legacy is seen there as well. Um, after the health infrastructure and, and uh, New Orleans collapsed, after the local authorities and the federal government showed that they would do nothing to help 
the people who were left behind in New Orleans. Local people, grassroots activists on the ground worked to rebuild that city. Um, some activists worked to rebuild the health infrastructure of that city, and one of these people was a gentleman, is a gentleman named Malik Rahim. Malik Rahim is a co-founder of the Common Ground Collective, um, and he helped to found the Common Ground Clinics in New Orleans that serviced people. You know, you'll recall from, uh, if you'll recall these images from this moment, there were senior citizens who were left in hospitals that were flooding. There were, you know, hospitals with no electricity, so people weren't getting, you know, life support and other sorts of support that they needed. And Malik Rahim and in interviews in that period and subsequently has said, the reason that I knew that we could start a clinic, a common ground clinic in the, in the face of the devastation of Hurricane Katrina is that we had done it, I had done it as a Black Panther party, in New as a Black Panther in New Orleans. I knew that, you know, with a couple of Band-Aids and a tongue depressor, um, I could do in 2005 what we had done in the 1970s. Thank you very much. And thank you, Maya, for your excellent emceeing. She covered so much. Um, a couple of things come to mind as I'm, I'm thinking through the work in your book. Um, the first question that I have is, what was the closest sort of Black Panther collective to the Baltimore area? There was actually there's a there there was a clinic in Baltimore and there was a chapter in Baltimore. I wasn't able to find much about it. Is there somebody here? Wait, wait, we got some history. Hold it's up! Wait, 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 wait! Come on, hold up, microphone, because we don't. That's we great. Right, if you don't, so tell us who you are. Oh, my name is uh, Yusef Braxton. In what neighborhood? Uh, well, Baltimore, Washington area. I, I, yeah, I'm from around a long time. Yeah, a long time. Uh, with the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party and the Washington chapter of the Black Panther. Panther Party, yes. and a comrade of uh, Marshall Eddie Conway, who I would like to say yes. is in prison in yeah. his 41st year. Mm. And he is waiting for a parole hearing he has been waiting for since the first of this month. Mm -hmm. As of yesterday, he has still not had his parole hearing for the month of November. What's his yeah. name again? Marshall Eddie Conway. And, and there's, a, there's a biography Conway. or an autobiography that's, that's recently yeah. come out of him by him, he right? Yes. Biography. Well, he, he, Eddie Conway was instrumental to a lot of things with the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party, but he was the person who discovered that the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party had been established by the National Security Council, uh -huh. the NSC, a gentleman by the name of Warren Hart. And upon working to have that, uh, to, to get those elements out of the chapter, the FBI, COINTELPRO, and so forth, was responsible for Eddie being in prison mm. and, and a lot of other charges for a lot of yes, people. Yes. But the free health clinic is still here on Greenmont Avenue. It's gone through a lot of changes. What's it called now? It's called the People's the People's Health Clinic. Okay. Where Greenmont what? It's uh, in Waverly uh, 30th and Greenmont Avenue. It's great yeah. to know. Yeah. In fact, they have, a, they have they have a large medical complex, a dentistry. It's general health care in that block. Um, that's, that's grown out of that program. And who's running it these days? I, I don't know who's responsible, uh -huh. but it's community-based. Great. Yeah. I was saying. Uh, it's sliding feet. Sliding you know, scale. It's not yeah. too much free today, uh, yeah. but <laughs> it still serves you know, uh, the needs of poor people, yeah. primarily. Thank, Thank you, you for that. that history. I love it when we got history. Great. Anywhere. Yeah. That's great. That's great to know. Um, and another one before I get... I'm sorry. There was well, there was a clinic in DC. I can't remember. I have a footnote in my book about it, but I can't remember. 
No. No, Marshall, Eddie Marshall Conway was the, I think that's my what you heard. So the other question before we go to this wonderful, attentive audience is you talked a lot about um, how we, we think about the Black Panther Party as sort of being separatist and insular, mm -hmm. and there's no way they could have done this work without having Absolutely. collaborations with people, and some of them that were, you know, ones that we wouldn't necessarily think the Episcopal Church one comes to mind, et cetera. Sure. I can't help but think about your work and what's happening with Occupy. Yes. Yeah. You knew I was going to ask that question, yeah, right? Yeah. So if you would elaborate a little bit on that and, and sort of what are the opportunities in this kind of historical moment when there are so many things bubbling up, sure. um, when traditional media is frankly not telling the real story um, and how Occupy and all of the kind of ancillary organizations that are coming together for mm -hmm. that are kind of making use of new media and other ways of communicating where they're trying to go. That's great. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually wrote a, a short piece um, about Occupy Wall Street and the, the meta, sort of medical activism that they're doing for dissent. Um, and one of the things was interesting, the article, the short piece starts out, um, in New York City at Zuccotti Park um, about three weeks ago, uh, the NYPD was trying to take down the medical tent um, at the Occupy Wall Street. And they were only trying to take down on this evening the medical tent. They had come in other times to sort of take generators and these sorts of things. But this night they came for the medical te uh, tent. And Jesse Jackson happened to be there. And there's this wonderful photograph of Jesse Jackson, who's what was probably in his 70s, late, late 60s, early 70s, <laughs> locking arms with these young activists at, at the Occupy site and they have their arms interlinked and they're standing in from the medical tent and there's a red cross on the tent uh -huh. and they succeed in blocking the NYPD from taking the tent and the medical supplies. Uh -huh. And so I use this article and that photograph to talk about the links between civil rights health era health activism and the health activism that's happening now. This is so similar to what whether or not the young activists recognize it, right? Um, you know, the Black Panthers made available to them the sort of resource and the imagination of starting clinics out of nothing, or, you know, a healthcare sure. tent. I mean, some of the photographs I show in the book, um, which are from the Black Panther Party archive uh, that Billy X. Jennings keeps, is, you know, the interior of the Boston Clinic was a trailer. Um, and, you know, that people just put together various things. It's often the case that um, police would raid clinics and people would start them. There's photographs as well of, as, of the L.A. Panthers sort of rebuilding their Bunchy Carter uh, People's Free Clinic, and it's outside of a storefront, you know. Right. So the same sort of, we're going to make this happen, we're going to put it together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I thought, the, you know, the image of Jackson with these activists sort of literally and sort of, uh, you know, figuratively linked that activism to this activism. And one of the, the sort of, sad things that's been to, to watch around the Occupy Wall Street is the fact that um, many of the young people are saying, I haven't had health care for five, six years, and being in this medical tent in this encampment in Denver or in New York City is the first time that I've had health care um, since I got out of college, right? right? You know, So we're still trying to figure out what's going to happen with President Obama's health reform, reform acts, but there are lots of people who, you know, you lose your health insurance, you leave college, you're 24, you're mm -hmm. 25, and you don't see a doctor. You know, you just, yeah. you hope for the best. Right. And many of us have been there may um, be in that position right now. Um, and also the other interesting thing, and this goes back to your earlier point, April, about the collaborations that was so heartening to see but also just rang true and so similar, um, was that there were so many young doctors um, walking with the, the 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 marchers at Occu the Occupy Wall Street and saying that you know people need health care um, we should have universal health care and, and there were people saying it's hard for me to do my job similar to how the Panthers were sort of talking about their clinics and why they needed clinics so 
these young doctors are saying, it's hard for me to do my job as a doctor because my patients don't have food mm. or because they have food insecurity or because they don't, you know, they're, they're homeless or they're sometimes homeless, their house, you know, their housing situation's not stable. So in that sort of context, it's hard to, to sort of have healthy people, right? Um, and so in the book, I use the phrase of the term social health to talk about the ways that the panther part, the Black Panthers, my nephew's being the young photographer here, the, the Black Panthers sort of link these things together, right? So it was not it was not just by chance that in the article that I read a little about from, a bit from that they linked, you know, no trash pickup and roach, you know, a house being infested with the fact that people needed health clinics, right? That these things were linked for the party. And I think that the Occupy movement is doing some of that work too. And I also, I guess my hope is that, um, you know, while all of the politicians were fighting about whether or not we were going to have universal health care, I think we didn't hear enough of the voices of people, people go to work every day, right, who don't have health care insurance, um, um, who do all the right things and don't have health care insurance. Right. And I think that the Occupy movement um, has gotten people talking about health care um, who were just respectable regular folks, right? Um, and I think it's really brought it to the fore in an important way. The issue of healthcare. Yeah. Thanks for that great question. Other questions? You had a question down. Oh, no, Agnew. Come on. I just wanted to say thank you. You did send an advanced chapter of your book to me, and I reached out to you because I'm in a class at University of Baltimore where we are documenting the people's free health clinic here in Baltimore and the work that the Panthers did. This is and Pam Ranberg who's speaking. I'm Pam oh, Ranberg and I'm a student at the University of Baltimore and yes. we are trying to record that. So thank you so much for the information. This is going to be helpful. Oh, that's thank wonderful. You. Yeah, I was happy well, to share it with you. It's my pleasure. That is so fantastic. Yes. Tell us who you are. I'm Joanne. I'm Lonnie's cousin. Was there ever a time where they solicited federal funds for any of the clinics um, and were they allowed to take any Medicaid products, that, just if you know by chance? Yes. I don't know. I didn't, you know, I'm not a social historian, so I didn't follow the paper trail that closely, but I hope that, um, you know, the book opens up these questions for other people to really look closely at you know, go into those files and do Freedom of Information Acts and just look at yeah. the grants. So, but they did file for grants all the time. So the woman, Norma Ntuma, I mentioned to you, uh, Norma Armour rather, um, did, she She was a grant writer for the party in, in Berkeley and, and wrote, you know, both um, um, uh, sort of local, regional, and federal grants to get resources for their school and for the clinics. Um, and they also wrote, they, they were, they did, they were very, you know, they were very opportunistic and they did interesting things. So. And the chapter where I write about the, their um, opposition to this violent, this biomedical violence study, you know, research center, um, uh, part of who was going to fund this center was the LEAA, which is the Law Enforcement Administration Association. So it was a kind of, um, you know, a kind of unholy alliance of medical researchers and, you know, um, behavioral scientists and uh, basically law enforcement agencies. Um, and so what the Black Panther Party does, in addition to um, shutting down or, or being, you know, in the coalition that would successfully block funding to the center, is they apply for a grant from the LAAA um, to also work with black and Latino men and boys, but they're doing sort of youth development programs. They apply to the same pot of money. Um, so, uh, and I, I write a little bit about that in the book. So, um, so yeah, they were applying for federal grants. I'm not sure about, you know, in particular whether it was Medicare or Medicaid. I don't. I, I think maybe some of them got, uh, may have gotten a little bit of um, war on poverty um, community clinic money. Thanks for that. Any other questions? I have one. 
Yes, Mom. And I'm not sure if I remember reading it, but we know now you've given us this great history about how the Black Panthers, what they were doing, and all the good that they did. When did they go wrong? What happened to make them go into the light that we do know? It wasn't some, you know, so much the original people who started because they had a whole different mission. But then what happened? Where did it go wrong? And where did all the, because the violence did ensue. Where did this start? It started at the beginning. I mean, violence ensued from the very beginning. I mean, they, they were, um, as someone said, you know, they were the Black Panther Party for self-defense, right? And so they imagined themselves as policing the police, as stopping police brutality, because p black people like today were brutalized in their communities by the police, right? Um, and so that kind of armed reaction to police brutality is always, violence is always going to ensue. So there were moments where, it, you know, whose bad was it? Sometimes it was the Panthers' bad. You know, a lot of times it was the Panthers' bad and people died. Um, but a lot of times it was the police's bad and, you know, both the local police and the FBI. And by the time you get to, you know, J. Edgar Hoover saying, you know, this is t on the top of my agenda to decimate these activists, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to, to say where the causation comes, you know. But wasn't some of it, I mean, weren't, like, sometimes didn't clinics actually get, like, destroyed? Yes. Sure. Sure. Oh yeah. Sure. Sure. So the so part of the the raids would be you know and you know partly I think um, uh, in reaction to Hoover saying we need to destroy these social programs, right? I mean, so part of the police raids were often destroying equipment, destroying food, destroying property, um, confiscating. One um, in Los Angeles, uh, one of the stories I can't remember if I included in the book or not, but one of the stories I was told is that they had someone driving some equipment to them from another. I think it was called the Wildwood Clinic. So there was a uh, not a Panther clinic, but a sort of new left free clinic operating in Los Angeles that was shutting down. And um, and they were giving all of their equipment to the Panthers because these were collaborating, you know, groups who shared things together. And the person was driving the stuff over in the truck and the police the police stopped them for no reason and confiscated all the, all the equipment out of the truck. So. <laughs> right. Where were we? I'm just curious. I was wondering if you'd ever been told that the uh, Black Panther Party was set up to destroy the Ku Klux Klan or to fight the Ku Klux Klan or provide. Um, I, I haven't heard that. Okay. I have, but other people in the room might know more than I. But I've never, I've never heard that. I mean, the the standard um, story of the party is that. Um, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale are working actually in a war on poverty sort of law office, um, and uh, as as I my as I narrated in the book, you know they sort of see that the war on poverty programs are are not the answer, right? I mean they're supposed to have community participation, but they don't, and the people from the community who do participate are often you know middle class people who don't necessarily have the needs of the sort of poorest people in the community at heart. Um, and so they do other, you know, and so they're like, you know, we want to, we have another imagination of what a community-based grassroots sort of program might look like, and that's what they work on. But I don't have any, I didn't come across anything, but that's not to say it's not true, it's just that it didn't come up in my, in my particular research. So much of this has to do with how we've, we've lived this in our public imagination, right? So a lot of different generations are yes. represented in this room, yeah. right? But, but every generation has a different kind of iteration of what the Black Panther Party is because of what we've been told. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah, I like you to say that. Oh, you can say it without my mic. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the Black hey. Panther Party, that's a good question, but that's not the case. The Black Panther Party was a party of self-defense. And it 
actually took its logo. The Panther comes from a voters' rights, uh, a, a voters' uh, uh, civil rights organizing group out of Lowes County, Alabama. Yes. In 1965, that's where the Panther comes from. The party asked to use the Panther as a symbol of the defense of black people and their right to determine their own destinies. At the same time, the NAACP had organizations and wings and arms of black organized ministers for self-defense, known as the Deacons for mm -hmm. Self-Defense. Robert F. Williams. Uh, Brother yes. Robert Williams and, and so many others. So the Black Panther Party took the example that was already made in the 50s, late mid and late 50s and 60s, and incorporated, but when Malcolm was killed, the Black Panther Party did a plebiscite of Southern California to look at the platform and program of Malcolm's organization, the Organization of African American Unity. He had two organizations, the American, uh, I mean the uh, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, and he had a political organization because he had come to political understanding of class struggle and looked at the struggles around the world and realized that black folks were gonna have to fight for power. It, and had to organize. And so the party then came into being because Malcolm was assassinated. And that, uh, those, those, those uh, at the, I think, was 16 point platforms were never realized. And so the Black Panther Party incorporated them into, with the community, a 10 point platform and program and went to build those and defend those. And that's where the violence came. The violence came with the community's right to maintain and build things in this community to sustain itself, support itself, because the institutions weren't doing it. And if we look today, we see almost all of the programs of the Black Panther Party and the communities during that period are now incorporated. We take them for granted. They're in the school systems, they're everywhere, you know, and they're household names and words, but these were programs that people died for to, to establish the right to do and create. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm Mitchell Ferguson, Thank you. but um, I'm basically corroborating what he said. But to respond to that lady, when did it go wrong? Um, to reiterate what I said before, is that the the FBI said that the Black Panther Party was the most dangerous organization to American security. Again, why? Because they fed their own people. That's where it went wrong. When basically them saying that we're going to service ourselves, we're not going to depend on the government, we're not going to depend. And the history of the United States is for any people, the Native American people, they want to pacify. When you say that I'm not going to be dependent on you and you are somebody that has been oppressed, that's when it, it started. Like he said, the food program, they co-opted it. The sickle cell thing, when they, gave, when they get the funding, they use that funding to co-opt it and take it away from the people who are self-sufficient. So there's no, from my research, there's no history when you say, you know, you make this claim as there's no history of the Black Panther Party ever initiating any violence on anybody outside of their community. That's the only, not, I don't think that's true. It, the only problems <laughs> they had were the internal things that they had. The internal conflicts with Elaine Brown in her books talks about a lot of times. But, Okay, but here's here's where I'm going to take this. I got I've heard both of you, and I appreciate your your reflections. But this goes back to my point, right? That multi generational 
multiracial audience. Thank you guys for coming. Appreciate you being here. We all have a different understanding of this party and the impact of this party. And that's why I asked the Occupy question, yeah. because seriously, we're at a historical moment where even with this research, she's already saying, I did this research and the Black Panther Party worked with really unusual sources that we didn't even know about. It never would have occurred to us that the Black Panther Party was working with the Episcopal Diocese or whatever. It just would never have occurred to us. Just like today, it would never occur to us that organizations that seem really radical are working with people who seem a little bit more conservative. So my question becomes, now that we have this information, mm -hmm. now that we live in the historical moment that has an Occupy Wall Street moment that's bigger than Wall Street, what are we gonna do with the information, right? Because here's the deal. I lived in Baltimore. I went away to college for 10 years. I've been doing this work for 12 years. I didn't know that. I'm an activist. I'm doing a TV show every week about great things that are happening in Baltimore. Not to mention that I'm a smart, eager person. So I'm putting it back in your generation because I need to know that, right? So I don't want to know that something that historic is sitting on Green Mountain 30th mm. and not knowing that it's connected to the Black Panther Party because we do need to know that. So part of it is how is this information being transferred from generation to generation, right? Like how, I mean, besides me sitting at my grandmama's foot mm -hmm. when I'm eating dinner, and asking her questions, right? How do we continue to have, you know, this trans transmission of this information from, you know, my grandparents on? And I'm going to let mm -hmm. you talk real quick. Mm -hmm. Tell us your name and uh, where are you from? Uh, my name is Tim. I'm a current resident of Baltimore. Uh, um, I thank you very much. It's been very interesting and important information. Thank you. My question is um, maybe um, broadening a little bit of what okay. we're talking about here. Great. And it has to do with the contemporary African-American, the majority African-American um, feelings about Black Panther movement at the time. I, I'm wondering, and perhaps other people are uh, able to answer too, sure. what um, was, you know, were there secret support? Yes, finally somebody, or, or resistance maybe? Um, I think it was it was mixed. It was very mixed. You know, I think it was um, mixed based on um, issues of class. So, um, for example, with the sickle cell anemia um, campaign, um, you know, there were other black organizations that were mobilized around um, sickle cell anemia as a cause, but they were sort of middle class black philanthropies, right? And the Black Panther Party saw them as doing something radically different. So I mean, so so sickle cell anemia for them was one example, right, of a larger manifestation of racial oppression and health inequality in the country, right? It wasn't just this one, you know, you know, special sort of boutique disease for black people that we should get around, right? And so, so there was, you know, so there were, there was sort of, um, so, you know, organizations, uh, national philanthropies around sickle cell anemia diverged, you know, diametrically from the Black Panther Party, for example. I think in the communities, you know, you know, part of, there's a lot of different reasons why healthcare comes to be amplified in the party's work um, by 1972. And one of them is, um, a woman uh, in the party, you know, says that they were losing community support, right? That like, if you, you know, we can quibble about, you know, why violence was coming into black communities when the Panthers were there and about whose fault it was, but the fact was it was coming into poor black communities and the people in the communities had to deal with that. And so one of the things, uh, I use this uh, an oral history from Carol Rucker, who was a member of the party and um, was working in the Bay Area. She said, we had to do something, right? You people were not, you know, we had to do something to garner support again be behind the work that we were doing. I do think you can probably say that there was a general sense of sort of pride and appreciation for the, the, the sort of perspective that the Panthers brought. I mean, even now to see um, 
photographs of, you know, I just somebody just sent me recently, I think it was from Time or Life, a photograph of members of the New York 21 standing in front of a sort of granite wall. I mean, it's a kind of classic photograph. I mean, you know, there's that photograph elicits pride, um, you know, strength. I mean, it's inspiring, you know, I think. So I think that, you know, that I think generally people felt and still to some regard feel that way. But I think on the ground in communities, there were lots of mixed feelings. Any last questions? Because I know there are people. There who was have a gentleman. Books. Did he have? Uh... Oh, I was just going to say, you were asking about why you don't know about this. Yes. You're standing next to the answer. I know that. You have. <laughs> if you want to find out, you got to do the research. And if the research is being done by some people, and you're asking why don't I know this, then you got to find out what she wanted to know. But here's the here's the challenge, right? <laughs> Because, of course, I know Alondra. She's my girl. I'm a, you know, she's my girl, right? And I'm a smart woman. I'll read books. What I'm saying is this. You all who have this information talk to multi-generational people every day. What I'm asking is, what is the substance of that conversation? So that it's not just a simple matter of, Alondra has to go to school for 500 years and write this book. When, at the end of the day, I could get this short and dirty from you and then be encouraged, maybe I don't want to do scholarship, maybe I just want to volunteer, right? Or maybe when I talk to the kids that I talk to in elementary, middle school, high schools across the city, or do a show, I want to be able to expose that and give it to them in a different way. Because, you know, we're, we're in a social media generation, so some people are going to read Alondra's book, and some people By the way, there's a Facebook page for the book that has yes. a lot of archival materials and photographs of the activists I interviewed and these sorts of things. So it's uh, facebook.com backslash body and soul. Okay, this is going to be the last question, because I want her to sign books. I, didn't, I know, I, every time I say, I'm a, Amanda from Baltimore. Okay, I, every time, could you not take a picture? I, every time I say I'm not going to say anything, I end up saying something. I'm sorry. Yeah. Every time I say something, you know, but to, you, to answer your question, it has to be institutionalized. I mean, I fight every day in the school system to get this stuff in the curriculum and, you know, so students can learn mm -hmm. this stuff. If, if it's not, for instance, you know, you could write a book and, you know, or you could speak to a class and what if you're not there? What if you leave? What if something happens to you? Once you leave, once you're gone, it's gone if it's not institutionalized. So that is, that, to, to answer your question, institutionalize it. We have to find ways to institutionalize this history so, you know, we, we won't, you know, be, you know, in the predicament that we're in right now. Great. Great way to end. Mm -hmm. Sacramento, California. At, uh, but that's an archive that's hard to get into. You have to okay. get It's very difficult to get into that archive okay. as someone who worked there a few what, times. Well, what I really want to say is that there are a lot of Black Panther, there's a National Alliance of Black Panthers. The 45th anniversary of the Black Panther Party was just held in Philadelphia uh, last month. So there, there are a lot of, there are uh, just uh, the Black Classic Press, Paul Coates, mm -hmm. is, has a great resource of information can Definitely. direct you. Also, you can go to Eddie Conway's website. It's uh, freeeddieconway.com. He's also on Facebook. Uh, Mumia uh, Sundiata Kali, who was uh, uh, Asada Shakur's co-defendant, has 
activities going on around the country being organized around. But can I just ask for, but none of these resources, unless you dig and dig and dig, tell you anything about the health programs or really about the, the details of the breakfast programs. And so, yeah, no, I know, but I think that, so, you know, we, there's our, at this point, I think we have some really, we have many and, and wonderful, like, Panther memoirs. Like, I think we, you know, we have, and we do have these great resources, and the website that Billy X keeps together, that, you know, it's about time website is phenomenal, but I also think that, you know, like, you were able to tell us, precisely as April is suggesting, in 30 seconds about this oh. clinic in Baltimore, and oh. so those are the... No, no, of course they are, but we need to document that, right? You know, we, what you just said, that's what we, you know, it's like, you know, we need, we need more. We need, we need those stories too, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming. Fighting um, white supremacy and free market capitalism, you know, that's the contradiction. So, again, why did things turn violent? You're fighting white supremacy and free market capitalism, the civil rights movement was just fighting, fighting white supremacy, but they were fighting white supremacy and free market capitalism. So when you ask where did the violence mm -hmm. come from, it's going to come. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, there are so, so many great examples. I mean, Philadelphia, I think, with their school system, and you talk about institutionalization, um, what the elders have done with that school system and making sure that um, an Afrocentric curriculum is adopted in public schools there is challenged, but and it's evolving over time. So um, wanted to thank you guys for this really robust interaction. And no, thank Alondra, because she did all the work. <laughs> thank Alondra. The book is Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. I wanted to tell you something. I'm putting her on the spot, too. Next year, Civic Frame is turning 10. We are doing, thank you, we are doing a 10-part documentary film series. Part of it will be at the Enoch Pratt Free Library here, upstairs. <laughs> I always get that messed up. Upstairs. Um, one of the films that we are showing is called The Black Power Mixtape. Have you guys heard of this? So I'm putting Alondra on the spot because I'm going to invite her back to be on that panel discussion. It's a really, it needs a lot of unpacking. Um, and Raphael Warnock, the Ebenezer uh, Church, Baptist Church uh, pastor, Martin Luther King's church, he's already agreed to be on the panel. Um, I'm going to try to get Alexa O'Brien, who's a part of the Occupy Wall Street movement, to come and be on that panel. And I want to talk to you and you and some of these other folks because we need to have that contextualized understanding of the, the complications of the party, but also why it's really still relevant and why it's still connected to the ways in which young folks are starting to become activists, beknownst to them or unbeknownst to them, right? Um, it's a really important part. So I will leave business cards here if you guys are interested in the series. We have incredible documentaries. Omar and Pete about um, offender reentry. I don't know if you guys have heard of this documentary called The Interrupters about violence prevention um, Yeah, in Chicago. And we've got a lot going on here in Baltimore. Hip Hop, Beyond Beats and Rhymes. Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed, one of my favorites. How, how many of you guys know about the Loving versus Virginia case, the anti-miscegenation case? Um, we have a, a documentary called The Loving Story that goes into detail. You should see the footage. It's like them literally in their house talking to them about this case. It's extraordinary. Um, a documentary called Give and Take about street music in New York, Immokalee, USA, about the, the uh, farm workers and migrant workers in Immokalee, Florida. The Learning, which is about Filipino teachers who came here from the Philippines to teach in Baltimore. And we're going to end with Prep School Negro. I don't know if you guys have heard about this documentary. Um, a brother who grew up in inner city uh, Philadelphia who 
went to prep schools. He's going to talk about that. We got a lot of prep schools here. A lot of my black male friends claim that they have some prep school damage. So we're going to get those, those guys on the panel. But I just wanted you all to know about that. We'll be sharing that information with you as well. And I'm really glad that you guys allowed me to haze Alondra to get her on this panel this way. But again, thank you so much for coming out on a Tuesday. Thank you. We know a lot of family members are here, so we thank you. We also thank the folks who support the Pratt, support the Pratt Library so we can continue this great work and have a wonderful evening. Buy books and get them signed.